I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 26 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Casey Ellis. Casey is the founder and CEO of BugCrowd. He started his life at InfoSec as a pen tester, moved to the dark side of solutions architecture and sales, and finally landed as a career in entrepreneurship. He's been in the industry for 15 years, working with clients ranging from startups to governments to multinationals, and awkwardly straddles the fence of technical and business sides of information security. Casey pioneered the bug bounty as a service model, launching the first programs at Bug Crowd in 2012, and has presented at Black Hat, DEF CON, DerbyCon, Source Boston, and many others. He's happy as long as he's got a problem to solve, an opportunity to develop, a kick-ass group of people to bring along for the ride, and free reign on t-shirt designs. In this episode, we discuss fixing the internet, bug bounty programs, designing software with security in mind, internet of things security, changing security training and recruitment, responsible disclosure, entrepreneurship, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, Casey, thank you for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? Very well, sir. Thank you. Well, good. I've been uh, kind of following you for some time, and, and I'm just kind of curious. What makes you so passionate about cybersecurity? Um, I mean, I, I would say the uh, the starting thing that's, uh, that kind of got me into the space is that I, I really enjoy thinking like a criminal but have no desire to be one. That, that, that That's probably how I'd sum it up best, like the, um, the kind of offensive and defensive creativity that – that makes up the cybersecurity industry and, and kind of what we do for a living. Um, that's always fascinated me, even as a kid. Um, so the opportunity to to get into it and turn it into a career, and now to turn it into a business, um, I was I was you know very excited to be able to do that. Yeah, I think I saw a snippet about you in a few places that said, you know, Casey is a compulsive problem solver. So, so what <laughs> what are some of the current cybersecurity problems you're trying to solve now? Yeah, I mean the thing that we're the thing that we're solving with Bug Crowd is really, you know, a combination of the fact that uh, the internet is way more vulnerable than it probably should be at this point, um, and you know there's not enough human creativity to go around to identify these vulnerabilities so they can be fixed and and hopefully you know learn from so they're not repeated in the future before the adversary comes along and actually exploits them for. Uh, for malicious purposes. So, you know, what Bug Crowd does, that's on, you know, in, in terms of how we're um, helping people that write software and build networks and whatever else. I think on the uh, on the hacker side of things, it's, you know, the problem that, uh, that we're solving there is the fact that, you know, hackers have been incredibly valuable and and useful to uh, to the technology space for, for, you know, 20 more years, uh, 20 or more years. Um, but have really spent a lot of that time very much misunderstood and, and ostracized. Like these are two groups of people that really need to be able to have a good long chat about things, but are historically terrible at getting along. So the the ability to bridge that gap and actually you know get them talking, be able to arbitrate that and translate, and then to have them transfer value in the form of information and, and cash. Um, that's really what we do as a business. 
Yeah, and it's been interesting. You know, the, the government and corporations have not had the best relationships at times with hackers and the security community. And, and I think a lot of it comes down, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of it comes, comes down to kind of responsible disclosure. And, you know, how do you kind of set that up where both sides feel that they kind of have a seat at the table where they can feel that, hey, I can, I can disclose this vulnerability and I'm not going to get ostracized for it or, or where people are more willing to accept uh, hackers kind of looking for, you know, maybe some of the dark things in their closets. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the the big thing, you know, the golden rule uh, that that we kind of put out there is if you touch the uh, if you're running a bug bounty program and you touch the code, you should pay the bug. And and really, what that comes back to is being proactive and and considered about you know setting expectations um, as a, as a company that's looking to engage hackers, but then also making sure that you follow through on on what you say you're going to do, which is actually where Bug Crowd comes in and, and helps out in the form of you know, arbitration on both sides. Um, and, and I think, you know, on, on the hacker side of things, it's, it's really a matter of, you know, being patient in, in, in some ways, um, but then also, you know, continuing to be available as, as this whole trend grows. Cause you know, in, in all reality, I think at this point, the, uh, the thing that's very clear to us as a business is the hackers are very much at the table wanting to help. Um, and they're wanting to, you know, participate in this type of thing for for all of the various reasons that they do. It's more the uh, the businesses that are kind of, you know, needing to uh, catch up and and actually roll out the red carpet and extend that invitation. So so do tell me a little bit more about uh, Bug Crowd and and how actually the platform works and how it got started. Yeah, for sure. So my my background, uh, I pretty much got straight into network engineering out of high school and uh, you know going back to the uh, the question you asked before like learned very quickly that yeah you can hack stuff like there's there's things that you can do to basically exploit you know bad assumptions or weaknesses or mistakes or whatever else that exists within computer systems to to get you know unintended consequences and and that just fascinated me so I became a pen tester and and basically ended up growing out a team in Australia um, at one point along the way there, I actually made a bit of an unusual shift across into solutions architecture and sales and, um, you know, love that, like being able to identify like technical solutions to problems, but then going the extra mile of being able to actually market that and then sell it, you know, the value of, of that sort of thing to the people that actually had the problem. Um, and then those two things got together, I decided I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So. Yeah, the, the, the concept behind Bug Crowd and how it all came about, I was running a pen testing company uh, back in Sydney, Australia, and it was a great little business, um, but I was really kind of bothered by the idea that, you know, the, the, the people that I had on my team who were incredibly good at what they did um, were constrained by the amount of hours in a day we could afford to pay them for um, or the customer could afford to pay them for. Um, but then being expected to compete creatively against this crowd of adversaries that have lots of different skill sets, like lots of different motivations and more of an incentive towards getting results than a constraint around, you know, the kind of effort that they put in. Um, so, you know, I wanted to solve that problem. It's like the math is wrong here. The balance of the equation is always going to end up in favor of the, uh, the attacker in this case, because they just have a superior resourcing and economic model. Um, and really off the back of that, you know, looking at some of the things that, that Facebook and Google were doing with their vulnerability reward program at the time, this is back in 2012, and starting to talk to some of the enterprise customers I had in Australia, you know, asking them what they thought, and they all liked the idea, but they're all terrified to try to do it themselves. So the question became, you know, why not? Like, what's actually stopping you from doing this? 
the answers to those questions actually became really the first iteration of bug crowd because it's like okay if we can take this core concept and make it consumable to uh, to the enterprise buyer then all of a sudden we've got the opportunity to uh, to change an industry Gotcha. Definitely. And so how's, how do you vet some of your researchers that do come on board to the platform? Yeah, so we run three, three types of program, essentially, um, public, private, and on-demand. The public programs are the ones that you, you, know, you read about in, in TechCrunch when they launch and, and different things like that. It's essentially the entire internet is being invited, usually by a technology company, but increasingly by uh, more traditional organizations to look for vulnerabilities, report them, and, and get reward or recognition as a result. So that's a piece of what we do. But then what we're also doing is using those programs to onboard talent onto the platform identify their skills, you know, what kind of impact they're capable of, um, and how much we trust them. And then using that data to be able to deploy the same bug bounty kind of crowdsource model in a private context. Um, so it's, it's kind of, you know, for private and on-demand, it's essentially the same model as a bug bounty program, but with trust and, and you know, all sorts of different controls that make it look a lot more like what organizations already do today for security assessment, but getting you know that superior kind of result that you get from engaging a crowd. Right. And where, what countries are you seeing most of your researchers coming from? And- yeah, so the, the, the highest representation uh, in the community that we have signed up at this point in time is actually from the US. Uh, the, uh, the second runner in that is, is India. I think the, uh, the highest population of bug bounty hunters per capita is from Australia, which I put down to, you know, the hometown advantage and the fact that, you know, this all kind of started there. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a blend of, of different countries. I think what's interesting about how the crowd grows is this concept tends to land in a particular region and then it grows almost virally through uh, existing like interest-based networks. So someone will get a reward for a bug bounty, they'll talk about it and they'll have friends in the same sort of region um, that'll see that, be kind of attracted to the concept because of that celebration, and then they, you know, get into the mix and start participating themselves. Gotcha. And, and does, now, does the platform is this something that is that does scale up and down, or is it for on, on, only like say enterprise level clients? Yeah. So most of what we're doing right now is is for call it larger companies. Um, what we what we've done right from the get go. Is, is put a high priority on, on making sure that the programs are successful, not just providing a platform that like enables it from the get-go, because I think that's fairly easy to build and do. It's more about, you know, like I said before, how do you arbitrate a conversation between two groups of people that are very valuable to each other but don't really know how to talk? Um, so, you know, the, the, the structure and the priority that we've put around that um, has basically opened up the enterprise market to us, and we've been, you know, very much uh, pushing in that direction and seeing seeing people come in from uh, from you know that part of town, so to speak. Um, you know, what I'd like to see happen in the future is for us to be able to scale down as well, because I do think this is a a solution that can apply itself just as as effectively to small and medium business as it can to the enterprise. But you know, for for where we are right now as a as a four year old company, it makes the most sense for us to pursue the big the uh, the big folk that are interested in the concept. Sure, sure. Now, kind of stepping back and looking at the way a lot of products kind of go to market, where do you think traditional testing models and the software development lifecycle fail when it does come to security? Yeah, I mean, my fundamental belief around that is that, you know, people don't believe in the boogeyman. 
uh, it's it's the this idea of you know I think at this point in time most folks that are responsible for building you know software or deploying networks are you know cognizant of the concept of, of things being vulnerable if you uh, if you make mistakes or get things wrong or whatever else um, they're just not as convinced that anything's like anything bad is going to happen as a result. Um, so like that's a lot of how I, I think about it. I mean, the interesting thing about security is that it has a, a negative feedback loop by design. Like the better the better you do it, the less you see as a result. Um, so you know you end up in a position where people that aren't necessarily as paranoid as as we are um, going out and saying, "Cool, I'm just going to push this feature or this product or this network or whatever else it might be." Um, and not give as much attention to security as I maybe should, because maybe nothing's going to happen. So, you know, getting it to the point where, um, you know, this is what we've seen as, as a, a pretty interesting kind of side effect of having vulnerability data come in from, from the crowd outside the four walls of the company instead of like the internal pen test team or, or whoever else. At that point, it's basically simulated what the internet is capable of and, and almost recreated a breach in terms of its psychological impacts on the uh, on the engineering folk within that company, but obviously without the mess and the fuss of a real a real hack. Right. And, and is there a way to get developers and engineers to think of more about baking in security, or is that maybe not the right approach? No, I, I, I think it's I think it's definitely the right approach. Like the the overall goal for us as a business is not just to to find bugs and, and whack them, um, because that's you know that's essentially a um, a never-ending kind of treadmill that, that we end up on, uh, and it's not, in, in my mind, a good solution over the long term. You know, the goal is to provide better security feedback into the engineering and development teams that, you know, ultimately, in an ideal world, is influencing how they, you know, approach code, how they approach design, how they approach actual planning of, of software and, and system development in the future. So, you know, I, I do think you, you can't turn everyone into a security zealot. Um, I don't think that's a that's a good goal, but I do think you can make everyone more aware of, you know, the real risk of, of getting this type of thing wrong. Um, and, you know, one other point to call out there is that I do think it's a very effective strategy for companies to use to try to identify the security champions that exist within engineering and development teams, because there's often, almost invariably, people within um, non-security but technical parts of the business that aren't, you know, tasked with security as their necessary job title, um, but are fascinated by this stuff. And if you can identify who those people are, basically empower them and, and kind of champion them um, while still leaving them in that space, then you can affect change um, and, and use a bit of network effect in the process. Sure. It makes sense. And, you know, we, we talked a little bit about how, how you are going after a kind of large business market. But, you know, the more people that I have on the show or talk to conferences or just in general, there's always that that latest concern over the past, I would say, you know, year or so that the concern about the Internet of Things and devices and SCADA and the SCADA market. Sure. Do you yep. see um, a development in that market for bug bounties and, and a, that approach of a similar approach to what you're doing in, in maybe software and enterprise level kind of things for SCADA and Internet of Things? Yeah, very much so. So we actually just released um, our third annual State of Bug Bounty Report this morning. Uh, so it's interesting that you're asking this question and we're talking about this at this point because um, one of the key findings there was uh, really the increase in traction around uh, you know crowdsourced vulnerability disclosure programs in the automotive space in particular, but then also 
the the increase in the average reward amount for uh, targets that have an embedded device involved. So that could be anything as trivial from a safety criticality perspective as you know your your fridge like thermometer that's on the internet, that type of thing, all the way up to a car, which you know has pretty obvious uh, safety consequences as a as a product. So yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I think a lot of what's happening there is that you know people are joining the dots on on cybersecurity. I think awareness around the whole idea of of hacking and things being hacked has just exploded in the consumer's mind over the past you know three or four years. And IoT as a very high growth market and, and something that's directly targeting the consumer is having to sit up and pay attention and figure out how they're going to respond to that, not only to make their products safer, but to be able to actually you know, assert that to the people that are you know, planning on buying them. Sure. Um, and, and kind of looking at the, you know, the market too, as far as the type of talent that's out there. Uh, there was one recent article I found where you were quoted saying, you know, the, the future of the internet relies on them being cybersecurity defenders, having an easy on-ramp into security as a career. 100%. And, and you know, do, do we really have the time to build the next generation of defenders um, or attackers in the traditional education, education platforms, systems, and labs, or do we need new approaches? Uh, I, I think we absolutely need new approaches. Um, I, I, you know, when you look at... Most of the folk that um, that we've seen be uh, you know the most effective on on the platform actually didn't come in from a traditional security career. They, they've come in from you know an engineering or a development um, you know networking those types of areas and, and technical disciplines, um, and they've clearly had you know we call it the golden eye in terms of the ability to think like a, a bad guy, um, and you know what bug bounties have done, given the fact that it's purely meritocratic for the public stuff, like they don't really need to prove anything for those programs that don't have restriction on, on who's invited, uh, other than to come in, find a vulnerability and demonstrate that it's valuable. Uh, like there's, there's no barrier to entry for them other than to prove the fact that they know how to do stuff and can, can get it done. So like that, that to me is, you know, one example, um, of, of how that can be solved. I think, you know, traditional education, Around cybersecurity, it's it's really important to understand the technical underpinnings of how these different things all work. But in terms of like attack strategies and you know the state of the art with with where criminal enterprises are up to and, and what vulnerabilities look like, that changes quarter to quarter. So the idea of treating that in a like treating that and teaching that in a traditional way, um, I'm not sure is the right answer to this long term. Like you think about. You know, the shortage just in the U.S. alone is 209,000 people. And, like, we're not going to get those out of out of colleges in the next three or four years necessarily. So, you know, we need to get a little bit more creative about how we, uh, how we identify, you know, the kinds of talent that we need to be able to be smarter than the people that are trying to attack us. Yeah, I was speaking with somebody else recently too. I said, you know, we have to start looking at in maybe non-tech areas. Are there some other areas, um, you know, maybe you know, some of those non-traditional areas to look for cybersecurity people? One of my favorite, yeah, no, absolutely. One of my favorite skills clusters. So like this, the sociology and kind of the, um, call it the incentives and, and the creativity that exists in the crowd. That's a part of the business that just has always fascinated me, seeing like where skills come from and what drives people when they uh, rock up and end up being really good at this. And one of the areas that, that popped out that seems actually pretty intuitive when you think about it in hindsight is is gaming. So folks that have you know been really like 
pretty like avid gamers. Uh, they get into you know multiplayer things that that have like a pretty strong adversarial component to the game itself. So they'll play you know Halo for example or, or something along those lines. Um, and they've learned adversarial thinking as well as you know the technical components that come with that as a part of it. And then that translates fairly neatly across into just thinking like a bad guy when you're trying to hack a network. Because um, what it's doing is it's it's fostering not so much the direct skills of identifying a vulnerability, but the underlying creativity and the creative processes that are required to uh, to outsmart you know the kind of defenses that might have been put in place. And so looking at kind of that along those lines, it, what, what do you think is the most important skill someone really needs to develop for pen testing, security re- research, and exploit development? Sorry, can you give me that one more time? Sure. I say, you know, what do you think is the most important skill uh, someone needs to needs to develop for pen testing, security research, or exploit development? Uh, well, that's a it's a it's a tight one. Like that's actually a tight race, I think, between creativity and and pretty like incredible discipline, frankly, because um, there's there's elements of of exploit development, there's elements of of, of testing um, that are really, you know, mostly about how thorough you are as a person. But then there's other elements of it that are, you know, more um, directly impacted by how creative you are. It, it really depends on the kind of vulnerability you're talking about. It depends on the kind of target. So, you know, I'd say those two are the top ones. And so if somebody does really want to start getting into exploit development, where would you recommend they get started and, and where should they start, you know, where, where should they start looking to, to get involved? Yeah, in terms of vulnerability, so... There's a difference to call out there between vulnerability identification and exploit development, like, you know, d- depending on what you end up working on and, and how involved that becomes, because there's a there's a point at which exploit development becomes like almost full on software development. Like you need to know all the same things that someone who's building a platform um, would, would need to know. Um, <clears throat> so there's, you know, there's there's that thing to consider there. I mean, where to where to get into it, I would say, you know, join bug crowd and, and start hacking on bug bounties. Like look at the other opportunities that, that are out there to participate in other bug bounty programs, you know, see some of the, uh, the different capture the flag contests that different security conferences run. Like there's a website called CTF time, um, that pretty much aggregates all of the different, uh, you know, contests around offensive security that pop up. And that's a really good place to start. I think like you, you, you're going to, you know, if you approach it from like a networking and a, and a learning standpoint, like there's a lot of information that you can use to start off, um, in, in that, that, you know, that site in particular, going to conferences is always good. Like just, you know, frankly, I think most of the value, uh, in, in getting started in the industry can actually be found in the community. Uh, it, it's really a matter of, you know, peering up, like finding people that are passionate about the same things that you are, but maybe a little further along. And then you can ask them some of the dumb questions and, and get answers that make you smarter. And then you just lather, rinse, repeat. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, I think there's, uh, you know, it sounds like you've been in the industry as long as I have. And it's things have changed where I think there's a lot more accessibility as far as people these days, but it's also the technology. Um, the things that you can do, it, it, even just a free distribution of Kali Linux and a VM, yeah, yeah. you know, totally. you, you can do a lot. <laughs> Before we yeah, used I to mean, build just, that stuff on metal, the kids these days, exactly. they don't know how easy they have yeah, it. <laughs> it. It's funny, like we, we, we run a forum um, 
for for the bug crowd researchers and really for anyone who wants to come along and just learn about hacking stuff and, and one of the pieces that's that's in there is you know where do i go to learn like what are the different tools i can use and and experiment with to try to like accelerate my understanding of how this all works like what are what are you know test environments that i can download like the whole idea of you know the deliberately vulnerable vms that exist out there like volnhub is a uh, is another really good uh, website where they have a bunch of you know deliberately vulnerable images that are set up pretty much purely for education. It's it's so you can download it and teach yourself how to hack. Like there's a lot of that stuff out there, but I do think that the community element of this is really important as well. And you know, to your point, yeah, I have been um, in this industry now for a fair while. Um, you know, one of the things that I've found refreshing in terms of how it's changed over the past 10 years in particular is it's just become more accessible there was there was a i think a fairly kind of elitist culture um you know prior to that um that that you know it wasn't necessarily the dominant thing but it, it was very much how it looked from the outside and i think at that point and it made it quite unapproachable as, as a discipline and a set of skills um but what's happened is that there's people within the industry that have realized that and, and made really deliberate changes to make it more accessible and to be able to bring new people in. Because like, that's what hacking is about, right? It, it's all about you know, learning, understanding, like gaining knowledge. And, and I think you know, the, the knowledge that's gained peer-to-peer -peer is, is really the, uh, the fastest and the most critical component to that. I would agree. Yeah, in, in being the career InfoSec guy that you are, now turned to a career entrepreneur person, yeah, uh -huh. how, how did being a hacker and an InfoSec guy prepare you for being an entrepreneur? Yeah, I love that question. Uh, yeah. So, um, look, I mean, doing a startup is a lot like breaking into a network. Uh, you know, you, you, you start at point A, you want to get to point B. You've got, you know, these three things in front of you that you get to work with, and you've got these 10 things trying to stop you. Um, that you have to overcome. And it becomes all about how you leverage what you have available to to actually get from point A to point B. And it can look like all sorts of different things. But, you know, going back to what I was saying, uh, or what I've actually tapped on a few times while we've been talking, like it's it's that that kind of muscle that you develop in your thinking um, around how you deploy creativity into that type of troubleshooting. Um, that I think is is a pretty like direct crossover between offensive security and entrepreneurship. You know, I, I think one of the things that I've spent a fair bit of time doing over the past year or two in my spare time is is going and talking to security, uh, you know, specialists like people that have a particular kind of specialized skill set that I know want to start a business but haven't necessarily kicked it off and and, and actually jumped in and and done it yet. And you know, I, my thesis there is that I think a lot of the folks that you know, particularly the ones that think about defensive and offensive security, are already pretty much wired up with the right kind of you know creative pathways in their thinking to be able to actually be quite effective as entrepreneurs. Yeah, and, and what are some of the maybe pitfalls that early stage entrepreneurs, as they move from being more the doers, need to worry about as they become more focused on the business side of the business? Yeah, um, I think <laughs> that's that's a good question too. I think the uh, you know I, I actually blogged on this at one point. Um, being a founder and being a CEO are two very very different things, and I think from the outside in they look like you know extensions of the of the other. Um, but really, you know, the, the 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 transition involves going from being the person who understands and does basically everything 
to the person who's ideally doing you know pretty much nothing. Um, and, and really most of what you're doing is making sure that you've got the right people in the right place. They know what to do and they have the right kind of skills to get the job done. Um, so management, I don't necessarily think is, is a given skill um, when it comes to creativity, uh, you know, in entrepreneurship and, and leadership and all of those different things. But I do think that if you're, if you're deliberate about understanding that, you know, if whatever you're working on is going to grow, you're going to have to up-level your skills in management pretty rapidly. Um, you can get ahead of it and actually, you know, still be successful. Yeah, and you kind of touched on uh, a couple key words there. And what what do you look at as the difference between management and leadership? Um, leadership, I think, is about it's it's more about vision and the ability to articulate. I think management is more about discipline, like being able to to deploy discipline in in how you're growing whatever it is that you're growing, and like you can have you know, management skills and not necessarily be, you know, a visionary leader. I, I don't think you can be a manager without having some components of leadership in your DNA or, or within your skill set. Um, but I do think you can be a leader without being a very good manager um, because you see people all the time that go out there and, you know, they're, 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 you know, very accurate in terms of how they predict the future and they can articulate it in a way that gets everyone on board. But when you go and ask them to actually do something with that, um, they, they kind of fail because, you know, it, it really involves herding cats and getting people to actually execute against it. You know, the, the difference I think that's really key between the two is, is, is execution. Like leadership actually doesn't require, um, you know, the ability to, uh, to coach people through execution in the same way that management does. And if somebody is looking down that entrepreneurial path, you know, what are some of the maybe non-industry, maybe media books or different things that have kind of helped you put yourself in that mindset that you've kind of consumed? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there's, a, there's a bunch of stuff around. Uh, you know, I, I think what I've, what I've always tried to do is, is be very, like, honest with myself around the skills that I'm going to need to learn next based on whatever, you know, the next season of, of growth looks like. Um, and either gone out and find found materials that – that that you know are, are really well regarded by by people that I trust um, that that speak to those topics, or indeed to go out and find people that have done those next things, you know, make friends with them, and and like I said before, like ask them dumb questions, and uh, and see if you know they've made mistakes that you can avoid because you've taken the time to listen to them. So it's a combination of of like looking for reading material, and and I think more importantly, actually going out and finding folks that have done, you know ahead of you what you're about to do um one book that i think is is really powerful for um <clears throat> for people in uh you know the early stages of, of of building a business is is getting to yes by yuri fisher it's it's essentially a book on on negotiation and and effectively like it's a, it's a it's a book about sales strategy so being able to understand how to put yourself in the seat of the other person, you know, reach a principal conclusion to a negotiation and actually get to a point where you're, you know, agreeing and moving forward. Because like as you build a business, it's not just about building a product. It's about finding people that, you know, have the problem that you want to solve and then convincing them that you can solve it. That's that's a really important skill that I think especially technical people generally don't go into this, you know, having. Um, and it was a really, you know, enlightening book for me. I think just in terms of some strategies around that. 
Oh, definitely. And I think there was uh, there was a recent episode in something like Silicon Valley where it was like the engineers were designing it for engineers and not putting themselves yeah, kind of empathetically yeah. in the seats of the other of the user. Um, I have I have I have a love hate relationship with that show. <laughs> like it's it's you know it, it's funny because I think most of the people that actually operate in the Bay Area it's more of a documentary than a comedy if that makes sense like it's yeah it's it, there's there's a bunch of like hyperbole and and you know comic stuff in there but it's so painfully accurate i kind of go from you know i'll, I'll swing from laughing my ass off at it to to kind of you know hyperventilating and, and reaching for a paper bag yeah can hit a little close to home I, I, I yeah, sure. it, can, it, it can every now and then yeah for sure yeah well, Casey, uh, where, where can people find you these days? What are you plugging? Is there is there a good place that uh, people can kind of find find you on the internet? Interwebs? Yeah, no, most definitely. So, so from you know the the, the business's standpoint, we're at bugcrowd.com. Uh, that's you know our primary website. As I mentioned before, we've got a forum that if you're looking to you know build community and connect in and learn stuff from from the uh, the, the community of I think at this point sixty thousand people that we've we've created and, and we've kind of brought together. Um, you can uh, go to forum at bugcrowd.com or forum.bugcrowd.com, excuse me. Um, and then me personally, I'm at, uh, I'm at Casey John Ellis, John with a H on, uh, on Twitter. And that's, that's usually the best way to have a chat with me. That'd be, that'd be great. And I'll be sure to put all those, uh, those links in the show notes, but I, I greatly appreciate your time today. Thanks for having the conversation. Appreciate it. It's been a fun chat. Cheers. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.